Kia ora whanau. How's it going? Hi. Hi. It's good to be back at Sunday nights. I feel like it's been a while since I've spoken here last, hasn't it been? It's been a good few months. It's good to be back up here again. Good to see all of you guys here. And awesome to be able to jump in on this series. It's been cool to watch um, Eric and last week Brittany. Um, I don't know. Church history, some, for some people it could be like, nah. but for me, it's like, these are some of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard. And when you dig deep into the stories of people who've gone before, you're suddenly like, oh, the world is bigger than I thought it was, you know? And the gospel's bigger than I thought it was, and we can do more than I thought we could. And last week specifically, Brittany did a really good job talking about Robert Laidlaw. And over the course of her talk, she talked to us a lot about dreams and what dreams that we have, and can we dream big, and how does God lead us on these dreams? And it's been stuck in my head this whole week of like, oh, dreams. So I've been thinking about it a lot. And I've been asking myself this one question, which is, if this works, hey, there we go. I've been asking myself this one question that if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? You know, Brittany was telling us to dream big. There's no bigger way to dream than if money was no object. If you could literally do anything, what would you do? Just take a moment to think about it. You don't have to shout out, just think. Anything in the world, money was no object. What, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? For me, as I thought about this, um, I started doing something really, really cool and then got really, really boring really quickly. So the first thing I was going to do is I was going to buy all the guitar gear I ever wanted. <laughs> all of it is just going to be all mine. And then I was going to invite all my friends over and we're going to make some terribly loud noises. And then, you know, that was maybe a couple of hundred grand to do, maybe a hundred grand to do all of that. And then I was like, ah. Oh. <sighs> What else do you do? And then I got more boring, and I was like, no, oh, I guess I'd probably buy a house and put some money into an investment firm so that I could live off of that when I'm old. And, and, and like, all of my dreams got like, they were all right. They were cool. I got to play some cool gear. I got to have a house that was nice to live in. I got to donate some cool things to charity. But that was kind of the extent of my dreams. And it made me wonder, there's probably a whole lot of us like that too. Like, we want to dream big. We, we deeply do, but we kind of run out of ideas after too much time. Like, get a house. That's like the Kiwi dream, isn't it? Like, that's the big one. If I get a house, what do I do now? I don't know. I'm a Kiwi. That's it. Um, that's it. You buy it. You get your mortgage done, and then you die, essentially, is how it works here. And I've wondered, like, ah, in wrestling with this this week, I thought, man, maybe the problem is... when when we're trying to dream big dreams, maybe our dreams aren't being shaped from the right place. Because if we're thinking about dreaming big dreams, so for me, how are my dreams shaped? Well, if I want to buy guitar gear, it's because I like guitars and I want to play it and have fun. And the next one is, well, I want to have a home because I guess that's what you do here. And our, it's some stability is nice. And my dreams are shaped by these mundane things around me. But what if our dreams were shaped by the gospel? What if our dreams were literally formulated and brought about by the gospel? What if our ability to dream only came about because of the gospel? Then what would those dreams look like? Gospel-shaped dreams. Well, to talk about that, I would like for us to talk about this wonderful lady on, uh, on this $10 bill. Hopefully you guys all know who she is, right? Kate Shepard? Yeah? Okay, so Kate Shepard, uh, leading, um, leading woman in the suffrage movement, um, and it's quite exciting because 125 years ago last week, 
was the time since women gained the right to vote here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Way! Any ladies in the house? Come on. You aren't as excited about that as you should be. Um, yes, yeah, so on the 19th of September in 1893, women gained the right to vote. This amazing, cool story. We are the first, uh, New Zealand is the first self-governing nation that gave women that right to vote. Beat out the UK, beat out America. Well, it's not hard to beat out America. They still haven't had a female head of state, but that's okay. You've beat out all these other nations to be the first one that gave women the right to vote. And we know that story. Most of us are familiar with that story. The story you may not be so familiar with is the one I'd like to tell you about. And that's about an organization of Christian evangelical women who were integral to the suffrage movement here in New Zealand and whom without their work and without their gospel-based vision, it would have taken a whole lot longer for women to get the right to vote. And that group is called the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Yay! They didn't have great branding back then. Um, yeah, it feels like such a letdown, eh? Who, who are these cool women going to be? Temperance. That sounds lame. They're trying to kill our fun. But I want to tell you their story because it is genuinely amazing. And when you hear about how they dreamed and how they shaped their world by their gospel-shaped dreams, it's astounding. But to talk to you about that, we need to talk about what... Uh, New Zealand was like 125 years ago, specifically what New Zealand was like 125 years ago for women. And uh, there's probably a lot I could say, but the short story of it was, it was the worst. It was, if you were a lady 125 years ago, it wasn't the greatest of times in history to exist. Um, if anyone ever asked you if you had uh, time travel abilities, what era would you go back to? Ladies, don't go back that far is the real answer. Things are pretty good for you now. Um, so 125 years ago, uh, things were pretty rough. For women, they didn't have the right to vote. There were a whole lot of uh, difficulties that they faced. Um, but there were some glimmers of hope. There were some cool things that were shifting in society. You know, um, Women were entering the workforce at a much more common rate. So before, they were hardly in it at all. By the late 1800s, you're beginning to see the swell of women who begin to go work. Uh, by 1891, 24% of women over the age of 15 were working which was pretty unheard of in the modern world. So many women were working. And beyond that, a lot of women were beginning to go to university. So in 1874, you had the very first female student at a tertiary study. Within 20 years of her entrance, over half of all students were women. Crazy, yay. Like a massive, massive uptake. And here is where it's really, really exciting. So all these women are getting educated, they're gaining the ability to work, they're gaining some income, and they're gaining the ability to dream. Because if you have no means, it's hard to dream. When you're stuck in a cycle of poverty, you're just trying to survive day to day. So what you find is in the story of New Zealand history, women are just getting this ability to dream big dreams. What are we going to do with our education? What are we going to do with our money? And it's amazing to see what they go for. So they looked around and they realized there were some real significant problems in their society. Some real significant issues that affected women specifically. These are just a handful of them. Um, so alcohol. Uh, now, we still don't have a great drinking culture today in New Zealand. Binge drinking is still high and it causes massive rates of death and suicide. It's rough, but it was quite bad uh, 125 years ago. Like really, really bad. Like New Zealand actually had a reputation around the world as they liked the grog and specifically men. 
because women couldn't drink that much. So there was a novelist um, named Anthony Trollope. He, uh, he traveled throughout New Zealand and Australia, and he wrote this. He says, I must specifically observe one point as to which the New Zealand colonist imitates his brethren and, e and ancestors at home and far surpasses his Australian rival. He is very fond of getting drunk. It's a nice little reputation for you, isn't it? And it's true. So in New Zealand, binge drinking was a massive, massive problem. And it's beyond just getting drunk. Usually when Christians talk about like, yeah, getting drunk, it's because we feel like there's some spiritual thing that's bad about losing control. And that's true. There's elements of that that are true. But the effects of alcohol were much more far-reaching. If you had a man who was the sole earner of a family, what often would happen is when it became paycheck time, rather than going back and spending the money on food or housing or things that his children needed for education, he would go to the pub and he would drink all of it. And the whole family spendings would go towards him getting plastered at the pub. He would then go home plastered to his wife with nothing after working for a week, and she's got to now find a way to provide for all these kids. And if she says anything to him or challenges him, he's drunk and angry, and so you're getting rocketing sky rates of domestic abuse and domestic violence in the home. And women are having to bear the significant brunt of the plague of alcohol in New Zealand on their shoulders. And there's nothing they can do about it. They have no voice in parliament. They can't talk to these men because they have all the physical power, all the economic power. They're stuck. They're trapped. So alcohol was a huge plague on society, on women, on children, on the betterment of everyone. Uh, another one that was quite bad was the uh, Contagious Disease Act. Um, so uh, prostitution was legal at this time. It was considered a necessary evil. Um, particularly for soldiers and sailors who were not married, and so prostitutes were there to kind of keep them under control, I guess. And uh, what the Contagious Disease Act did is it said uh, a bunch of guys got together in Parliament and said, there's a lot of STDs going around. Let's pass an act to stop this. So the way they stop it is any police person at any time could go up to anyone who, any woman who's considered to be a prostitute, could force her to have a medical check to see if she carried a venereal disease, if she did, she could be immediately locked up for hospital care for an indeterminate amount of time, sometimes up to a year. A prostitute could be taken away and held against her will in a hospital. And so women are being incredibly punished by this Contagious Disease Act. And the men? It's working out sweet for them. I mean, they're not checked. No men who are going to prostitutes are ever checked by the police. They're allowed to come and go as they please. So it encourages men to keep visiting prostitutes because there's less risk for them now, and it penalizes women who use this as their only means to gain any sort of income. It's pretty rough, eh? If you're a lady, that's a, that's a rough thing. And the last one is divorce. Um, divorce courts were pretty heavily weighted in favor of men, uh, convenient considering most of the judges and lawyers and everyone involved were men. And uh, basically what would happen is if a man wanted to file for divorce, it was relatively easy, and he could get claim to most of the possessions really, really, really fast. If a woman wanted to file for divorce, it was so difficult. She had to provide mountains and mountains of evidence on top of trying to find a lawyer who would even hear her case and take it to a judge who's probably not going to listen to her because he thought she was probably too emotional to speak clearly in a court of law. Awful. And so there's these really, really, really rough plagues on society that are heavily affecting the role of women and children. And so you get all these women who are gaining education, who are gaining some means of income, and so they decide, 
let's do something about this. Let's dream big dreams. What could it look like if life was different? And so they formed the Women's Christians Temperance Union in 1885. And so their, their spearheaded goal, first off, was to stop the plague of alcohol on society. Um, but it began to do so much more than that. And their whole ethos, their whole ethos was based on the gospel. Why did they gather together to do this? Why were they pushing forward this? It was because of Jesus. Because Jesus promised a whole new world. In fact, at one of their AGMs, uh, they passed this resolution where they said, we recognize the fact that the foundation of all of our work lies in the acceptance and practice of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe that greater effort should be made by our membership during the year along the evangelistic lines. We affirm our belief that God in Christ is king, king of the nations, and as such should be acknowledged in our governments and his word be made the basis of our lives. Cool, eh? Awesome. When they were dreaming... They looked at their scripture, they saw Jesus freeing and setting people free, they saw Jesus transforming society, and they said, all right, let's dream big dreams, let's do this. This is the basis of all we do, we can make a difference. And so they started off focusing on alcohol, and they started focusing on the Contagious Disease Act and divorce, but pretty soon they realized that the issues facing society were far greater than that. And at some more of their AGMs a little bit later, they split up into over... 25 different divisions all across the country to focus on all these kinds of things. Look at this. I mean, they had commissions towards hygiene, juvenile work, Sunday schools and preschool care. The Sunday schools and preschool care that the WCTU started ended up becoming the basis for the modern kindergarten or preschool movement in New Zealand. The Christian ladies started that. Uh, evangelism, work in prisons and police stations, soup kitchens, night shelters, ministering to soldiers and sailors, the people who are abusing the prostitutes, uh, nutrition classes, uh, young women's work, legislation and petitions, work amongst Maori, uh, impure literature, and the suppression of the social evil. Couldn't say prostitution because that was too illustrious. So you had to call it the social evil. Look at this. That's a pretty far-reaching mandate. And they had thousands of women all across the country actively working in each one of those fields to change society for the better because they saw that the gospel of Jesus Christ literally can transform nations. And they believed it could happen in their context. So they started working and moving. But they realized very quickly that if they wanted to make real lasting change, if they really wanted to do something about all these problems that they found, they needed to get a voice in the government. Because they'd keep on trying, they would recommend, they'd sign petitions, and then it would go to a bunch of stuffy men and collars in Parliament, and nothing would happen. But they couldn't vote. They couldn't vote on any issues, and so suffrage became the primary thing that they focused all their efforts on, because they're, they're like, look, we've got thousands of women ready to do this work. We've got thousands of women ready to lobby. If we could just vote, we could do it. We could force the government to face some of these issues. And so that's what they did. They became highly involved in the suffrage movement. So as this was kind of bubbling, it wasn't just Christians who were doing this. There were women from all different spheres of New Zealand that were starting to move towards trying to get them the right to vote. But the WCTU just suddenly flooded the suffrage movement. And most of the WCTU members were also members of their local churches in some area. At all of their meetings, they prayed to open and close the meeting. They read scripture at all of their gatherings together. 
in their magazine that constantly went out advocating for their policies. Everywhere through it, you see the Jesus, 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 gospel of the kingdom, Jesus, transformation of society, because Jesus is doing this. Crazy. And they became so influential that over 50% of the leading women in the suffrage movement were members of the WCTU. Over half of the main female leaders who pushed for the right to vote were all evangelical Christian women who were motivated by the gospel. Big old dreams to change and to transform society. Awesome, eh? So cool. These women are my heroes. Like, to have the guts to just get in there and do it when everyone's standing in their way. Because obviously there were a whole lot of people standing in their way. Unfortunately, church stood in their way a little bit too. As much as I would love to say the church was a great advocate for the WCTU, they, we kind of stuck our foot in our mouths. So the, uh, the New Zealand Presbyterian, when talking about the suffrage movement, uh, they wrote this. Our own opinion is that the female franchise would, neither, would improve neither the condition of women nor the character of our colonial politics. Men and women differ as much in the composition of their minds as in the structures of their bodies. The woman was designed to be the helpmeet of man and man the protector of woman. This is clearly the order of nature. Thanks, Presbyterians. Sorry, ladies, your minds are just deficient for politics. It's very hard. Um, the Catholics, they took a slightly more, um, I think, nuanced approach. So the Catholics wrote, the woman is the queen of the sacred shrine of the home. She ought to retain her sovereignty unimpaired. She is not fitted by nature to leave home and take part with men in the noisy debates of modern parliamentary life. Oh, those Catholics are looking out for you ladies. You have sovereignty in the home. We shouldn't bother you with all of our namby-pamby politics. We shouldn't have to bother you with your very well-being. We'll let the men sort that out. And now, unfortunately, I'd love to say we as Baptists did a whole lot better. I'd love to be like, the Baptists were great! Mean old Catholics. We weren't. Um, In fact, right after the vote was approved, uh, the New Zealand Baptists came out with this. Uh, They said, we have hitherto refrained from saying anything upon this question, not from want of sympathy with it, but from a desire to avoid controversy in our columns upon a question on which there are definitely two sides. All those Baptists never wanting to start a fight. What's particularly ironic about this is that if you could read the pages of the New Zealand Baptist from those times, there were so many arguments. So, I, can't, I cannot explain to you how many fights there were that spread across the pages of this New Zealand Baptist magazine. And so the great irony that the New Zealand Baptists were like, well, no, we really, you know, now that it's through, we were really with you ladies, but oh, we just, we didn't want to stir up controversy. And you're like, your magazine is pure controversy. You just didn't want to stir up controversy about this because somehow it didn't matter enough to you to actually put your, anyway. If I could go back 100 years, I'd tell them something different, but then I'd probably be part of the problem and I wouldn't be any better. Um, So they faced a whole lot of difficulty. The church didn't really help them. We kind of stood in their way most of the time, but still they persevered. Why? Because they dreamed very big dreams and they held on to a gospel that firmly was rooted in a belief that Jesus Christ wants to transform the world around us. Not just get us to heaven, 
not just make us feel better inside so that we can become a better person and nicer to our neighbors. No, a fundamental belief that says, no, when Jesus died and rose again, everything is now different. The structures of society now have to be different because now there is one true king and that king is Jesus. And by his spirit, he is working to transform the world and bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That was their motivation. That was their drive. And so they pushed and they pushed and they sent out petition after petition after petition and after petition until at one point, more than 30,000 women signed their third petition that went around the country. That was nearly a quarter of the adult female European population. Nearly a quarter of all Pakia female, females signed this petition to push for the right to vote in New Zealand. And then on the 19th of September, after getting fought back multiple times with previous laws that have gotten so, so close, finally, they had enough support within Parliament that it was passed. And women gained the right to vote in New Zealand the first time in a self-governing nation. Women had a chance to speak into their own future, gained a status of their own equal footing in society, and had a voice in shaping their own context, all because a whole bunch of ladies were motivated by the gospel. And they dreamed big, big dreams. They got the right to vote, and as soon as they got the right to vote, they went to work on all their other things. They started immediately working towards prohibition. Uh, their prohibition work was fascinating. So it, it got progressively more and more difficult for pubs to open. You know, uh, Pubs used to be open at all hours of the night. They managed to push forward a law that made pubs shut by 6 o'clock, which is tricky because work finished at 5. And so it meant that there was only an hour in which people could drink. Good idea in principle. In practice, did not work out so well because it meant that a whole bunch of men would finish work, gun it down to the pub, and then binge drink for an hour so intensely that it, people were like passing out. It was a nasty, nasty place. But it did limit the hours of alcohol consumption. They pushed for total prohibition, and in 1919, they managed to get across the line a vote across the country where they had a small majority when about 51% of the country voted to agree for the total prohibition of alcohol all across New Zealand in 1919. And it was ready to become law until some other votes came in. And that was the votes of all the soldiers who were out fighting in World War I. Because while they were overseas fighting, they got news that there was this big new law being passed and there was this big bill and they could vote on whether they wanted to say yes or no. And of course, soldiers who've been in just hell suddenly heard that all the women back in New Zealand were trying to take away their drink and they're like, don't take our grog! And so they all, pretty much all the soldiers voted no to prohibition and the vote got shot down 51 to 49% by less than 10,000 votes. Less than 10,000 votes. Less than 10,000 votes held the line between New Zealand being a dry country or not. Now I'm not advocating saying that prohibition is the way forward, but I'm looking at like the context of these women who were able to move forward to kill an evil that was very much plaguing their context. Uh, the Contagious Disease Act, they managed to get that changed within a few years, um, got that totally repealed and set up a whole lot more stronger and better protections for women in prostitution and set up stricter regulations upon the men who visited them, which is actually wonderful for all of the, for the prostitutes and for the men actually having to be held accountable for that. Um, within a few years, they also reformed all of the divorce laws um, where women finally could actually have equal standing 
um, particularly in cases of domestic violence where the husband was abusive or was manipulative and using the finances wrong or starving the family and children, women suddenly had an ability to take their children and separate themselves from someone who was genuinely doing them harm. And they couldn't do that before, but now they could because of this Women's Christian Temperance Union. Awesome, eh? Awesome, awesome, awesome. And all because of their fundamental belief in the gospel to dream big, big dreams. And so one of the, uh, one of the main leaders of the WCTU, she wrote this. She said, Jesus Christ was the founder and the head of the women's franchise movement. He said that in him there is neither male nor female in his sight. He considered both sexes equal. And our very own Kate Shepard, she wrote this. The vision of our organization is to apply the golden rule to the affairs of civic life. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Written by our very own leader, Jesus. Crazy, yay. What a bunch of women who are motivated to be, dream big, gospel-shaped dreams to change their society. So the question is, looking at them, what about us? What are your dreams looking like? Um, a couple of weeks ago, let me just geek out with you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I managed to get a hold of an early 1970s Fender Twin Reverb. It's awesome. Darren, if you're here, love you. Um, hey, he's back there. Uh, it's this awesome, awesome amplifier. Some guy I know down at the Mount, he's really, really cool. I went over to his house one day and he took me back into his garage. He's an old pianist and musician. And he took me back and he was like, oh, I've got some old guitar gear. And he lifted back this cover and he showed me this amp. And I was like, yeah, like it's this beautiful early vintage style Fender amp. There's only like one model that's a little bit nicer. So in the history of vintage van van Fender amplifiers, it's like this other blackface and then this silver amplifier. And so I was like, oh, can I buy it? He said, no. And I was like, ah, uh, can I borrow it? He said, yes. And I was like, good enough. So it's sitting at my house now and it is beautiful. It's uh, 85 watts, which is ridiculously loud. Uh, it was made back in the day before big old PA systems were made. And so if a band was playing a big concert hall, the only way people were going to hear your guitar is if you plugged it into your amp. And so these things were designed to fill like massive halls with sound. So they are ridiculously loud. And I've got it sitting at home in my living room. And I usually only get to play it at night once my kids are asleep. Which means 90% of the time, it, volume goes from like one to 10, I don't even hit one to really play it. It's sitting at a, just under one o'clock and that's about all the sound that I can handle. And it works and it's still beautiful, but it kills me a little bit because I'm like, oh, this thing's supposed to be like turned up to like seven because 10 is just dumb. You're going to bleed in your ears. So you turn it up to seven, and it's supposed to give you this beautiful, rich, beautiful tone. But I've got it sitting on one most of the time. And when I think about that, I wonder how often so many of us, when we talk about the gospel and the dreams that the gospel gives us, how many of us are sitting on one for the majority of our time? If we're thinking about like with your life, what God has called you to do, when you go back home and you put your head on the pillow and you think about tomorrow and you think about your next year and you think about your last few years and you think ahead to what it's going to be and you start dreaming of what could life could be like, as, as Christians, we hold to this truth that believes that we follow someone who literally came back from the dead. 
in that his spirit is literally at work in our society and it's at work in us. The very same power that rose Jesus from the dead is supposed to be living within each side, within each and every one of us. The power to transform nations, that same power that led the early disciples to move through and establish the church in Rome, that same power that caused the church to, to grow in Rome so rapidly that it completely upended the power structures and changed society for the world, that same power of the gospel that empowered a whole bunch of women to literally change the face of New Zealand society, that same power is inside of each and every one of us. You can dial that sucker up to 10. God wants to do big things through his church here in New Zealand. How often do we sit with that dial turned down to one? Like to come to church? Yep, church is good. I'll try and make it to that most weeks. I'll try not to sin because that's bad and I'll feel guilty about that and I'd have to go to church more if I do that. So <laughs> don't want to do that. Um, I guess I'll try to be nice to some people. Um, I'll try and move up in my job. Yep, it'd be great to make some more money. Uh, be great to get a house. Is that the extent of what our dreams could be? Is that the extent of the power of the gospel that wants to work through us, ordinary people? Because it's not about being extraordinary. The WCTU is filled with just ordinary mums, ordinary women who had just gotten their first degree. There wasn't anything that crazy special about them, but there was a power of God that wanted to work within them, and it genuinely changed the face of this country. What does that look like for you? The author of Hebrews wrote this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he scorned at shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There wasn't anything that crazy about the women, the WCTU. There are a bunch of people just like us. But their dreams were fueled and shaped by a power that was bigger than them. There was a willingness to let their scope and their vision for society go beyond the dial of one and be cranked up to ten. Not because there's anything special about us, but because there's something special about God who wants to work in and through us. There are people here that could dream big dreams. I mean, Caleb just mentioned uh, push pay. Someone who's able to dream a simple dream of, I just want to enable people to give, but has now grown this huge company that is literally funneling millions and millions and millions of dollars to churches and other Christian organizations to change their contexts. What are your dreams? If I can get the band to come out. Look, the gospel of Jesus has transformed nations. It's literally transformed this nation. Specifically, actually every, whether you're a female, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, it has changed you. You would not be where you are if not for the work of the gospel in this country. And God, God hasn't stopped what are the big problems that we face as a society that we could begin to dream gospel dreams about? What are the issues in your community or in your neighborhood that you could see the gospel wanting to transform?
What are the passions laid within you? When you look at the world, how can you begin to dream about a different sort of society? Not just getting your house so that you can live and be safe. No. The gospel has power to transform. Let us begin to dream bigger dreams of what that could be here. So would you stand with me as we pray? God, it has been, uh, it's been awesome to, to read these stories again this week. I've been so humbled and challenged by how you have worked through your people in the past. Man, God, I've been challenged by the way you took a whole bunch of women and you worked within them to dream about a different sort of New Zealand. One where alcohol wasn't the main plague that stopped so many lives short before they shouldn't have ended. You worked within women to dream about a sort of society that doesn't penalize women and let men get off, get, get off scot-free for things that should have been done way, way differently. God, you gave women the courage to dream about a society where women have equal standing before you and are able to use all the gifts and abilities that you've put within them to help shape this world. God, I'm also so apparent, I'm, I'm so aware of how my own dreams can fall short of that. Lord, would you forgive us for small, mediocre dreams? Lord, would you forgive us for being content with turning the dial on our faith to one and thinking, this is good enough? God, would you forgive us for our complacency? And Lord, I pray right now, there are people in this room, there are people watching online, I pray that you will begin to open up within us to help us to dream bigger dreams. Dreams way bigger than just about having a safe future, a comfortable place to live, a happy existence. God, give us the ability to dream about a different world. Fill us with a vision of the gospel that when we look out across New Zealand, we begin to see it with your eyes. We begin to see what New Zealand could look like if your kingdom came and if your will was done here on earth as it was, as it is in heaven. Give us a kick up the pants when we're just happy to sit on our couch. Prod us and push us when we're content to just let life pass us by. Because God, my, my dream is that we find a way to each and every one of us turn those dials up to 10. To believe that Jesus, you are working in our society, in our city, and in our world. And give us the courage to follow you as we do that. Spirit, come. Spirit, open our eyes to your work to lift our eyes from the ground and monotony, to lift up and look at the hills to see where you are coming and where you are working. Be with us, we pray.